Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today, 50 years after the end of Jim Crow, questions of voter suppression and access to the ballot are once again at the forefront of our national political debate around the right to vote. Hi, welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Suraj Patel. And with me is Professor Samuel Zakharov of NYU School of Law. Welcome, Professor, and thanks for coming. Thanks, Suraj. So right now, across many states, there's a huge battle brewing about voter ID rules, voter fraud, uh, and, and vote suppression. Do you want to walk us through what's going on right now and the historical context behind which, you know, we are here? Well, we had a period uh, after the Civil War of the of a massive uh, effort to enfranchise the former slaves. And so you had for the first time uh, blacks being able to vote, particularly in the South of the United States where most of the black population was concentrated. You had federal troops occupying the South. You had federal registrars being sent out to register black people to vote. And during the period that's generally the Reconstruction period, but effectively leading all the way up to the end of the 19th century, you had black office holders. You had blacks in Congress. You had blacks in the state legislature. Uh, it was a high point of black representation and quite extraordinary. These folks were one generation or less removed from slavery. During the period of reaction to that, the period called redemption or the Jim Crow period, the laws in these southern states began to change. And so, they, the, so the southern states were, they were empowered to change their own voting laws? Well, they, they, we lost the sense of federal oversight, and voting laws have always been on a state-by-state -state basis. So they amended their constitutions, and they put into place what seemed to be neutral rules that were designed to keep blacks from voting. And so the neutral rules were things like a poll tax, making everybody pay something to be able to exercise the franchise, which disproportionately affected the poorer black population. They put into uh, effect literacy tests, which again disproportionately affected the black population, which had not had the benefit of schooling. So these are things that seem even-handed on its face, but would have a disparate, disparate impact. But by and large, especially when you got to the deep south, to Alabama, to Mississippi, to Louisiana, this was designed to get the blacks out of the political process altogether. And so this was the legacy of uh, what we looked at in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Revolution, with the Voting Rights Act, and this is what was driven out of this cancer of exclusion was what was driven out of the American body politic. And so after 1965 and after the amend constitutional amendment about uh, getting rid of the poll taxes, basically the, the manifest forms of exclusion dropped out. And it's been so successful that today, basically black and white voter registration levels are the same in the United States. Black and white voter participation levels are about the same. So it's, it's shocking to even have this discussion 50 years, half century after the civil rights period. And yet political campaigns, of which you were uh, a member of one, spend millions of dollars creating today voter, you know, voter protection or access efforts 
legal challenges. Why is that the case? Well, unfortunately, uh, we learned as a country the wrong lesson from the Florida election in 2000. Florida taught us that access to the ballot and turnout is the ball game. And very small differences can tip an election and maybe tip an entire national election. And ever since uh, Florida, the political parties, as they become more polarized, have started to appeal less and less to what's called the swing voter, or the, the middle voter, and more and more to trying to get out their, their constituents and demoralize the other side's constituents. Now, one way of doing this is that both sides have a story that they tell. Um, the Republicans like to tell a story that there's a great deal of voter fraud in the United States. And the is there? No. Empirically, is this testable? Uh, it's very hard to test because fraud by its nature tries to hide itself. Um, but what we know is that where there is fraud in the United States, it tends to be in absentee ballots. It tends to be places where voting is done in some amount of numbers because retail fraud, you're going to really go in person and expose yourself to criminal prosecution to have one more vote. How many elections turn on one vote? But if you can get 20, 30 at a time in a senior citizen home where maybe some of the people are not fully competent any longer, then all of a sudden it may be worth your while to do that. But in-person fraud, there's almost none. But the other side of the equation is that the Democrats believe that there's a huge amount of vote suppression in the United States. And empirically, there's no evidence on that score either, at least not so far. So you have a narrative which is very powerful for mobilizing the constituent, mobilizing your base, they're taking our vote away. They're fraudulently, you know, stocking the ballots. Um, and it's quite corrosive and destructive. And today we're having an academic discussion. But let's just go ahead and I ought to, you know, remind the audience that you have had practical experience in this in an election on one particular side. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, I was uh, a senior legal advisor to uh, the Obama campaign in both 2008 and 2012, and particularly in uh, 2012, uh, access questions were uh, quite important in the campaign. So I've played my role on this issue. Let's just focus on eliminating access to the voter rolls in the first place. There are instances of of secretaries of state purging voter rolls. How does that work? Well, secretaries of state have to purge voter rolls because uh, otherwise you have no idea who's, who's, who are actually the voters. I used to litigate cases as a civil rights lawyer in Mississippi and discovered in one case that the secretary of state had stopped purging the rolls in the 1960s. And so it turned out that something like 150% of the population of Mississippi was registered to vote. Because if you've registered once, you were carried on the rolls forever. Well, that's obviously nutty because you don't know how to allocate resources, how many poll workers you will need if you have no accuracy in the voting records. So something needs to be done. But purging right on the eve of an election, requiring people to re-register, that turns problematic. All these things have a healthy element and can be used for unhealthy purposes. That's the paradox here. Yeah, what I find kind of shocking about this right now, or surprising about this right now, is we're in an era when this should be 
infinitely easier than the past. So we have to go back to America's original sin on this, and America's original sin is slavery. And the big threat when the Union was created was that somehow the North would dominate the federal government and would use its power over the federal government to affect Southern slave relations. And there were all sorts of compromises built into the Constitution to address this, the most notorious being the three-fifths compromise. However, one of them was that there would be no federal power over the internal election affairs of the states and that the states would determine who was eligible to vote, on what basis, they would determine the voting rules, all that sort of thing. And we changed that mildly after the Civil War, but still it's state by state. And what's worse, the states then devolve this power to the counties so that American elections are administered at the county by county level. So we do not have a centralized data bank of registered voters. When you move across state lines, you're supposed to inform your prior state that you no longer live there and, and are no longer registered. Nobody does that. There's no easy form to do that. There's no automatic way when you enroll in a new state that that information is taken back. There's attempts through some reform, statutory reforms in the 1990s and 2000s to get at this, but it doesn't work very well. So part of this is simply the fact that it's done on such an, a locally administered level, so, and the population moves. 14% of the American population moves every year. So many states are enacting stringent ID requirements at the polls, and uh, observers, call that vote suppression. Why doesn't it make sense to require a, an ID at a voting place? What's the argument against I, that? I don't really have an argument against that. I think that there are concerns about people who don't have IDs. There's always uh, people who are more, uh, more on the fringes of the system. They don't have a driver's license. They don't have a passport. They were born 80 years ago in a rural hospital. They don't have their birth certificate and it can be cumbersome for them to get that. And so there should be some obligation on the states to make that available to them if they're going to require it. In some states, like in Arizona, the Secretary of State, if you say you, have, you don't have an ID, they take your picture, they put you in a database, and now all of a sudden you have a photo ID for voting purposes because you bring in your utility bills or anything that establishes who you are, and now you have a government photo record of, of who you are that's in the nation, in the statewide database. I mean, I will push back and say that we do take for granted that everyone has a driver's license, but a large number of people don't have licenses. A large number don't, but, uh, but surprisingly, people, uh, most people know how to work through the system, and they have something that, that serves for this purpose, and a lot of states have given uh, have given uh, uh, some kind of uh, non-driver's license ID. Certainly the federal government could give you uh, your Medicaid card with, your, uh, uh, with a picture on it, and all of a sudden now you have a government-issued ID. There's a lot of things that could be done. But, the, but you use the term vote suppression, and that's the difficult term, because clearly these are aimed at suppressing the vote. Right now, there's a partisan divide. Republicans think that when there's a bigger turnout, Democrats win, and when there's a smaller turnout, Republicans win. 60% of the electorate turned out in 2008 and 2012, and Obama ran the table. 
In 2010, only about 42% of the electorate turned out, and the Republicans uh, won across the board. In 2004, it was the other way around. So it's not always like this, but right now, that's the belief. And so it plays into partisan concerns. On the other hand, to be an effective vote suppression strategy, it has to actually suppress votes. And the reality is, even in a good year, only 60% of Americans vote. And people who don't have a driver's license, who don't have any kind of institutional connection to the broad society, tend to be more marginalized in, more, in, in other ways than simply the fact of not having a driver's license. Bluntly, they tend not to vote. And so it's not clear from the social science studies that have been done that there's any correspondence that has yet been established between the advent of these new laws and actual suppression of voting. Right. But you, we don't, we, you know, it's still in the early stages. So on the voter ID uh, issue then, if we don't think that there is suppression going on, if we don't think there's fraud, I mean, I guess the argument is it's the same issue for both sides in that one less person who, is, one person turned away from casting a ballot is, is a form of fraud in, in itself, you lose a vote. And one person overcasting a vote dilutes your vote, so it's the same thing. Well, but it, it, it doesn't have quite the partisan valence that the supporters think it has on both sides. So right. let me give you an example. Pennsylvania passed a voter ID law. It then got struck down by the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But uh, while it was in effect, it required the following. It required that there be absolute correspondence between your name uh, as it appears on your ID and your name as it appears in the voter rolls and your registration. And if there's any disparity, you get eliminated. Well, it turned out that this hit a particular group hard. It turned out it hit relatively young women who married and changed their names. Now, this was passed by Republicans. Married women who changed their names, if you look at the Pennsylvania data, tend trend Republican. So this was picking up more Republicans than Democrats. So it's, it's the, the confidence that, they, that the Republicans were going after voter fraud and instead ended up uh, casting the net too wide. Is there a fundamental right to vote guaranteed by the Constitution? No. No, that was one of the shocks of Bush versus Gore for many Americans that the Supreme Court said there is no right to vote for president, period. Now, the reason for that is a technical one. The reason is that the votes for president are cast by the Electoral College, who are selected in such manner as the local state legislatures shall uh, direct. But it turns out that we do not have in our Constitution an affirmative right to vote anywhere. What we have is the right not to be denied on the basis of being under 18. We have the right not to be denied on the basis of race. race. We have the right not to be denied on the basis of sex. So here we've got a piecemeal system of using the other rights guaranteed by the Constitution, non-discrimination primarily, to guarantee sort of some semblance of an equal access to the ballot. Right. And this is, a, again, this is a design defect that was partially intentional because the original Constitution did not want to take up the political process and says very, very little about uh, the requirements for voting and does nothing to cabin the discretion of the states 
other than how they will be counted, so one state against another. Um, it is noteworthy that after the initial Bill of Rights, more than half of our constitutional amendments have had to do with the political process. So we've been trying to retrofit this ever since, and what we haven't done by constitutional amendment, we have mostly done through cases, through the Supreme Court's uh, uh, case law. But the Supreme Court reacts to the negative. It always reacts against something that's perceived to be wrong and not against an affirmative claim broadly stated that I have a right to vote, but never guarantees an absolute categorical right to vote. Outcome. And so that becomes kind of complicated evidentiary issue-wise. So if I were to challenge uh, Secretary uh, Blackwell's uh, closing down of Sunday voting, I'd have to find some piece of smoking gun that says it was aimed at suppressing African-American votes. Well, I actually litigated that case on behalf of the Obama campaign, and so I can tell you exactly what the legal theories we pursued were. Uh, we did not bring it as a racial case because we could not establish what the racial impact would be exactly prospectively. We raised the fact that it was likely to affect African-American voters distinctly, but we didn't have evidence of that. So we didn't, we didn't uh, try to litigate the case primarily as a suppression case directed against the African-American community. Uh, instead, we, we tried to challenge, uh, why are they doing this? You know, how, how do they get away with this? Why are they changing the rules? Ohio had a big problem with too many lines, the, the lines being too long at the polling sites, and this was a cure to that. Why are they curtailing early voting? And why are they allowing early voting only for residents from out of the country and foreign military stationed, uh, uh, military uh, folks stationed abroad, and not saying that anybody who happens to be in the same place on a Sunday afternoon can go in and vote as well. So the line drawing, and all of this was aimed at trying to figure out just do they have the right to manipulate the rules on the eve of the elections? Do you know? Do the do the insiders have the right to try to change the rules? And so we went into court, and it turns out the courts have been very good on this. The courts have developed a jurisprudence that is ahead of where the Supreme Court is formally, uh, and particularly the Sixth Circuit, which is the appellate court with jurisdiction over Ohio. They've developed a a a, a a jurisprudence which I read as follows. If you do things which are out of the ordinary, at some point you're going to have to explain yourself. And so you change the rules up on the eve of an election. You, you make it in a way that's predictable, that it's going to have an adverse impact on the franchise. You're going to make it harder for people to vote. Okay, we're not going to tell you you can never do these things. But at some point, if you do enough of them, we're going to make you come into court and say why. The end there was that uh, we recaptured the capacity of, fo of uh, voters in, in Ohio uh, to vote at early voting sites. Uh, the state did not get to curtail uh, early voting the way, uh, the way that they wanted to. And several hundred thousand people took advantage of this. Now, it's of course possible they all would have voted on election day. It's possible that something might have uh, substituted for it. One of the reasons this issue has been thrust to the forefront of the national debate is because of the Voting Rights Act. Um, as I mentioned, it was aimed at ending Jim Crow and 
fixing this problem, at least for the limited purpose of race. Can you talk about the Voting Rights Act? Well, the Voting Rights Act did a great job of breaking the back of Jim Crow in the Deep South. That basically what it was, what it was designed to do, and that's what it did do it. And the voting rights oddly disappeared more and more from the agenda. Uh, and the reason was that the main thrust of the Voting Rights Act, just simple access to the franchise, had largely been accomplished. And secondarily, jurisdictions that used other devices like uh, multi-member at-large districts had largely fallen and were forced to have single-member districts like everyone else. So you had a lot of black and Hispanic elected officials all over the country. These issues seem to be behind us. Now, lo and behold, all of a sudden, the access to the ballot, what, was what we used to call the first generation of voting rights, which seemed so long ago, came back to the surface. And the question was whether the same mechanisms of the Voting Rights Act could address it. But the Voting Rights Act had a major limitation. It put a subset of the population, of the states rather, uh, basically under federal receivership. That was extraordinary when it was passed in 1965. It was extraordinary when the Supreme Court first looked at it in 1966 in South Carolina versus Katzenbach. And everybody understood that something had to be done. The Edmund Pettus Bridge, the imagery of police savagery in the face of American citizens just asking to be able to vote was just too much. It, it, something had to be done. Quickly, the code to obtain credit for this interview. More details at the end of the interview. The code is 042516. Again, that's 042516. Back to the interview. It seems like in a lot of these cases, Trying to change the turnout patterns or suppressing the vote is a Republican phenomenon. Why are only Republicans doing this, or are Democrats doing this too, or have they? Well, let's start from the basics. This is a, a way of maintaining political power, and whoever feels they have the upper hand always has an incentive to keep the electorate the way they like it. And historically, a lot of these tools were the tools of the Democratic South. And these were perfected there. These were the way of uh, suppressing uh, Democrat, uh, black votes. And they were also a way of keeping out Republican strength, because Republicans were outsiders. So it was necessary to keep the voting concentrated. What's happening now, and this is hopefully just the phase we're passing through, is there is a, an, a, an article of deep faith on both sides that high turnout is Democratic, low turnout is Republican. In these circumstances, you would expect the high turnout party to want to liberalize turnout and the low turnout party to want to make turnout more difficult. If you want to have one predictive variable on whether a state will, uh, will adopt restrictive voter access rules today. Today, the only variable you need to know 
is are Republicans in charge of the process in that state? Because there are no Democratic states that have adopted significant uh, limitations on voter access, and there are very few Republican-controlled states that have not. And that's, it's just the fact of life. And uh, whether it's justified or not, you have to de debate on different terms. But as an empirical fact, it is unfortunately the case that this maps on exactly to the partisan divide today. And that stems from the idea that higher turnout uh, helps Democrats and harms Republicans and lower turnout uh, helps Republicans and harms Democrats. That's the wisdom of the day. And that, that could shift if we move back into a world where high turnout is associated with Republican advantage, we could see the whole thing flipping around. But I should add one more thing, which is that with regard to some of these issues, the partisan divide is not present. So for example, voter ID in all the polling that's done, voter ID turns out to be highly popular with both Democrats and Republicans. It turns out to be uh, favored by majority among whites and among blacks and among Hispanics and among virtually any demographic you can look at. So the, the difficulty is that uh, the, the most of the attention is, has been on, on voter ID. ID. And you tend to then conflate the important actual outcome determinative issues like closing of polling places or limiting mail-in voting with voter ID. Right, which so far has been uh, evocative. But, you know, it's interesting. The, the voter ID case went to, uh, went to the Supreme Court in a case called Crawford coming out of Indiana. Part of the majority uh, was, uh, was Justice Stevens, who's generally associated with the liberal side of the court. And one of the reasons uh, that Justice Stevens found that this was a permissible form, having an ID requirement, was he didn't trust the record on how many people this actually affected. And the plaintiffs were able to only get a few people who had actually tried to vote and did not have a voter ID because you know, if you're going to go, go, go vote. vote, you probably can get that. And they found among their, the plaintiffs was, uh, a couple of nuns who were in their 80s who had worked in El Salvador their whole lives and had just come back to the United States. And the Supreme Court, there was a sense in Justice Stevens' opinion of come back when you actually dis have a sense that this is a real problem. The facts are not quite so dramatic on voter ID, at least as, as of now. The facts are quite dramatic on what a large percentage of the electorate has come to depend on early voting and things of that sort. So doesn't the Voting Rights Act take care of this? Well, the Voting Rights Act could take care of parts of it, but the problem with the Voting Rights Act was uh, that it was geographically limited to mostly the Deep South and a few counties elsewhere in the country. And most of the activity right now is in the places that are in play politically. And so when you go to Mississippi, Alabama, there's no this outcome point, determined. It's not outcome determined. It's not outcome determinative. It, it, it may be uh, an issue in Florida and in Texas for local elections. And the Voting Rights Act uh, might have restricted some of the state uh, laws that have been passed in North Carolina and Texas. But as you know, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the remaining provisions of this preclearance regime in the Shelby County decision. 
so that now you basically have a similar nationwide standard across the country and uh, so there's not really a difference between North Carolina and Wisconsin, between Texas and Ohio in terms of how these things are judged. If we still had the Voting Rights Act in full force, it would have more restrictions in place. It would make it harder to do this in Texas. So you're saying the Voting Rights Act only applied to the southern states and deep south? The part of the Voting Rights Act, what's called Section 4 and Section 5, the preclearance regime, only applied to some states. And that was the part of the Voting Rights Act that was aimed to go directly at restrictions on getting registered and voting. There are other parts of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is designed to make it more effective for the black franchise to get electoral success. And that's still upheld. That's still upheld. That's still nationwide. But that doesn't quite map onto uh, the problem that we're talking about here, which is just the ability to cast a vote. That's how the votes are aggregated for purposes of determining electoral winners. If there is a broad consensus on it being rational to require an ID at the polling place to vote, but the focus may uh, be better spent being on making sure it's easy to get set IDs. It should be. Functionally in this country, we're, we keep looking for the proxies for a national ID card, and whether it's your social security number or whether it's your driver's license or something of that sort, uh, it would be easy to have government start issuing more photo ID cards that have your current address on them, whether it's your Medicaid card, whether it's at the state level, uh, putting that information on your university ID if you go to a state university. All that kind of, uh, all those changes would satisfy any concerns and would get this issue off the, off the, off the agenda. I, I sometimes I think about our, uh, you know, we monitor polls across the world. Uh, the UN does it, we do it. and. I would just love to see a report on our own sort of disjointed uh, local county by county different requirements and see what someone would say. Well, we have people from all over the world who come to observe elections here. In fact, we bring them here to show them our democracy. And they always want to go to the central place where all of this is coordinated. And we have to explain there is no central place. It's all done at the local county level. And there's a sense of disbelief. Well, who's in charge? Say, so, well, you know, in, in Indianola, it's this person. And in, uh, <laughs> and in Philadelphia, it's this person. And in this town, it's this person. And you say, how can that be? What are the reforms that are available to us and processes that are available to us knowing where technology has gotten and how far back voting is? Well, voting is far back because it is done at the local level. And so nobody is willing to invest in a, in a uh, massive overhaul because they need a certain size market to do so. So you get ad hoc local solutions. And my favorite ad hoc local solution is we had a big problem in New York City in the 19th century with Tammany Hall, where they would have thugs burst into the polling sites, uh, into the precincts, uh, where they thought were favorable to their opponents. And they would come in, they would steal the uh, ballot boxes, and they would throw them in the river. And so the big reform in New York technology was this huge machine that was used for almost 100 years in New York that had this big screen that you pulled back and forth. And this thing weighed somewhere upwards of 500 pounds. And the driving technology was these were too big to pick up and throw in the river. And so 
That's the kind of innovation we had. And that machine, those machines were in use until 10 years ago in New York City. Mm -hmm. So where do you see this going then with, with the technological innovation? Is that any way to help sort of uni make this more uniform, solve the problem? Well, there's, there's two parts to the question. One is what could be done conceptually and then what's politically palatable at any given point. There were efforts made uh, by, the, by a bar bipartisan commission uh, led by uh, uh, Bob Bauer, who was President Obama's lawyer, and Ben Ginsburg, who was the who's the chief Republican lawyer in election matters, to try to figure out what kind of reforms would make sense. There were a lot of sensible bipartisan suggestions that could be enacted if there were a political will. You'd think that Bush v. Gore was enough of a crisis to reform the voting system. Well, Bush v. Gore gave rise to a lot of uh, attempted reforms, most notably the Help America Vote Act. Unfortunately, it was a bit misguided, and it had a uh, simple one-time technological solution, and the technology it selected was not particularly good, and it had a 10-year lifespan. So right now, one of the crisis points is that the voting machines, which came in as a result of HAVA, the Help American Vote Act, uh, are at the end of their lifespan. So something has to be done, and it puts a lot of financial strain upon local authorities to replace them. In terms of where it's going to go, it has to be that the technology is going to make all of this stuff irrelevant at some point. It, it, if you want it, it to, seems inevitable. It seems inevitable. It's such an arcane system. Maybe on election day you can vote on your ATM. One thing that could hold back uh, the adapt adoption of new technologies is the way our elections are conducted on Tuesdays and the staff that it requires to retrain. Well, the, the, the way we do it right now puts a premium on having people there. There are lines. It's all at one place. And we don't have a permanent election staff, so we rely on volunteers. We either have to make a hard break technologically, the way that Oregon did with going over to all mail-in uh, voting, or you have to have it done in a way that the poll workers are not behind the curve technologically. And that's a hard line to adjust. Or what about an election poll mobile app or something like that? I think that, uh, again, um, there's, a, there's a generational divide, and when you talk to younger people um, who grow up with, you know, everything's on the phone, right? The fact that this is the one thing that's not seems just so arcane, and of course, so bizarre. one needn't take place of the other. If you really want to go exercise your civic duty on Tuesday, November 7th, by all means, go to the gymnasium and do it. Or you could, yes, or you could uh, say that the app is active only in the four days before the election. You could have all the same kinds of restrictions. Um, I don't know that we get a really great sense of community by standing in line waiting to be able to vote and losing time from work. I think that's one of the reasons that turnout is very low, except in important elections. And if I could just make uh, one passing comment about the consequence, it means that there's a distributional effect on who the electorate is. That tends to distort the outcomes also, because then I have to get to work. I can't wait in line. Yeah, I'll do it for one, one time for the presidential election, but I'm not going to do it for the primary. I'm not going to do it for the local elections. 
Well, thank you very much. It was an excellent discussion. Um, I know there's so much information, uh, misinformation thrown around about vote suppression and rules and voter IDs, and, and it's shocking for people to realize that there is no fundamental right to vote in the Constitution. So thank you for telling us about this. Thank you very much for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.